Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. And Hello I try. and welcome to Call to Action. The go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today I've caught Andrew Wilshire, an independent analytics consultant with a PhD in engineering. Andrew is the founder of Diametrical, a strategic consultancy that focuses on the space between people and data to unlock the real value of analytics. He has over a decade of experience in media analytics and his expertise includes marketing mix modeling, media optimization, segmentation, and market analysis. And somehow he still finds time to talk politics for outlets such as The Spectator and Reaction Life, crunch numbers for J.P. Caslin's manifesto, and play funky music on the bass. Andrew says, Finding clear insights based on analysis and understanding of consumer behavior, developing a plan, Implementing it, evaluating it against predicted results and repeating the process isn't rocket science. Some might even call it marketing. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hi there, Giles. Nice to be here. Right, quick fire questions then, Andrew. So, Mac or PC? Or PC, every time. Numbers or words? Let's say numbers. (laughs) London or Strathclyde? Strathclyde University, obviously. (laughs) Long or short of it? Short. Ritson or Sharp? Sharp. Right, two more. Stuart Hogg or Gavin Hastings? Oh, uh, as of Saturday, Stuart Hogg. And uh, quite ridiculously, uh, Bootsy Collins or Colin Powell? Uh, I have great respect for Colin Powell, but Bootsy's the man. Nice, nice. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for joining us, Andrew. Lovely to be here. Let's get cracking. So I always ask people how they ended up doing what they're doing, and I'm particularly interested in that very first step so can you tell our listeners about your first ever job or jobs and your first ever proper career job the very first thing I ever did was I I, I inherited my brother's egg delivery (laughs) business business I say in in inverted commas uh, when I I suppose I was like 14 or 15 Uh, I was just delivering some eggs in the neighborhood how do you how come you inherited it he was an older brother presumably yeah yeah John is um, two years older I I think he I can't remember. He might have gone to university, or he might have got um, got uh, just a better job. <laughs> yeah, that that was probably the first thing I ever got paid for. I've done all kinds of things, really. Fast forward a little bit. I so I see. I I did a degree in electrical engineering, and graduated in two thousand. And then, following a very brief diversion through the Royal Navy, I returned to Strathclyde to do my PhD in fiber optic sensors for jet engine monitoring. Following that, I did a one year. Uh, enterprise fellowship with the Royal Society of Edinburgh. So that was looking at commercialization of research. I did another year postdoc after that, and then I was kind of fed up with university life. And I moved to London, partly because uh, Amy, who's now my wife, uh, lived down there, and partly so 
kind of wanted a change. I ended up going to music college for a year, which, uh, you know, try, try telling your parents that um, you're off to music college having already spent the last like, eight years at university. <laughs> and then after that, yeah, so I, I needed a job. I, I figured that I was more likely to starve than to make it as a, as a fully professional musician. Um, at that point, my brother was, I think, head of innovation at PhD. Um, and he got me, he, he put me in contact with Sam Diaz, who was running uh, brand science in the UK there, which was Omnicom's econometrics division. So I ended up, that's how I ended up in this um, wonderful world of media. The reason we ask that question, and you probably know already, is just that we particularly like to uh, celebrate the non-linear journeys that people take. So yours starts with egg delivery, with a detour in the Royal Navy, Jet engine monitoring. I'm not even sure I understand what that is, if I'm being honest. London Music College, Omnicom. So I spent two years at Brand Science, sort of doing econometrics, uh, just marketing, mixed modelling and that sort of thing. And then I moved to Data to Decisions, which was an independent at that point, and, uh, run by Paul Dyson and Carl Weaver. And uh, that, that, was a, that was a really terrific job, actually. And I sort of moved into doing more programming, so I kind of taught myself a bit more programming. I ended up building uh, the sort of econometric modeling software and the optimization software and some other bits and pieces that all of the analysts there used. And D2D was acquired by uh, Dentsu. So I did another couple of years there, sort of um, working on some innovation stuff. I moved to Posterscope for a short period of time, then went to a small company specializing agent-based modeling called Sandtable, which is was acquired by WPP a little while ago. Uh, I was just there for a year, and then I went to Maxis as Global Director of Advanced Analytics, which is a tremendous job title. The, the job title <laughs> is sort of so much bigger than the job itself, but it's tremendous. And then when, just as Maxis was about to be um, smashed together with MEC to form Wavemaker, they were, they were making redundancies. So I took redundancy, and I've been on my own ever since. And here we are, four years later. Four years later. And and how long, roughly, was that, that journey you've just shared? Because there were quite a few stops. From graduating to now is 21 years. So I graduated in 2000. Fantastic. So you say you've been on your own, you're on your own now. You've also been, as I understand it, with JP quite a bit. It's kind of a Twitter conversation that got out of hand, I suppose. <laughs> Don't they all? Actually, too many of my Twitter conversations, they tend to get out of hand one way or another. <laughs> I was looking back because I thought it might come up as like, what, how did we first get in contact? And there's definitely some stuff. I, I'd written a couple of things for Marketing Week, which he had um, commented on and, you know, had had the temerity to disagree with. And, and even quoted um, the long and the short of it at me as justification. Uh, and then, we just, yeah, just it's one of these Twitter things. I've met so many, like, really great people on Twitter. And the ones that can put up with me constantly arguing that black is white you know, uh, we'll, we'll sort of hang around. So I've got a little sort of group of people that tolerate me. And, yeah, we just get into these conversations. And then uh, when JP said he was he was writing something about the long and the short of it yeah, and that sort of kind of stuff more widely, then I think I think I'd already had a, a couple of arguments with various people online. And, uh, and he sort of asked if I wanted to sort of uh, co-write this bit with him with me approaching it from the more sort of data side. Just a, a, a little collaboration, really. But, um, okay. yeah, no, I, I really like uh, JP. He's, and he's always up for an argument. The only thing is 
we've ever seriously disagreed on are putting mint sauce on lamb, which he <laughs> says is an abomination. And no, um, he's wrong. We both know that. Yeah. And he also thinks that we had an argument where he said that that data in English is a plural word, whereas you know all sensible people that know it's a singular mass noun. So <laughs> you know you, you say the data, the data is telling us this, not the data are telling us this. There's not nothing. Nothing sets my teeth on edge as much as people saying the data are. But there we go. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. That's good to know. I'm pleased you've clarified that that somewhat. And JP is uh, JP is a good friend, and you know, not least a, a friend of of the pod, as you well know. So on his recent episode, we talked a bit about the effectiveness elephant in the room so you found that elephant together as I understand it how did you approach the project how did you approach it in a way that complemented what JP was doing it would be useful to know in in kind of layman's terms if you just pretend I'm a total moron which um, is alarmingly easy to do well like I say I wasn't really approaching it fresh because I'd sort of engaged with it a little bit online to, to different degrees and it's one of these things that kind of starts with, you know, I, I sort of have some instinctive reservations about it for enough about the, you know, the general principle and sort of express that. And then people will sort of argue and then you sort of express it more expansively, perhaps. And so in a sense, I had some of the material already done because I'd written in some emails to, to JP and, um, and Weimer as well, just explaining sort of my, why I thought that it possibly wasn't as reliable a rule as it might be, uh, the, the sort of 60-40 rule. The number one reservation is that it's clearly a partial data set. You have the number of, of media campaigns that are analysed and submitted for an IPA award is a, a very small minority, and it's biased towards campaigns that at least somebody thinks has done well. You know Whether or not it has, it's at least believed to have done well. And it's in the interests of the the agency and the client and anybody else associated with it to emphasize just how well it's done just because everybody likes an award because you get to you get an award and you get promotion and you get to move on in your career and so the rest of it. whereas there are precious little incentives for being entirely objective about the performance of something that you've worked on yeah people people rarely enter awards to take part that's sort of why should be there's a lot of work to do but at the same time the the they're not impartial observers of their own work. In a data set like this, you cannot replace missing data. I mean, it's biased towards sort of effective. It's also biased towards interesting. People like a story to, to tell. And if you're just to sort of draw your quadrant diagram of interesting versus boring and effective and non-effective, then you've only really got samples from the, the interesting and effective corner. You know, the the boring and effective corner, you know, your your standard, sort of, uh, an FMCG TV campaign which came up with a tolerably good ROI, for example, not really award winning material. <laughs> you know, there's no there's no great story. It's just this is this is competent. Things that are interesting that absolutely bombed. Uh, there's a few of them out there. If you spend a lot enough time doing econometric modeling, then the really interesting stuff. Um, you know, some data agency is desperate for you to find a big effect for, you know, and it's just there's nowhere to be found, and you have to break it to them that uh, whatever their their hot idea was seemed to have absolutely no impact on the general public. And then there's the uh, you know the boring and ineffective, which I suspect is an awful lot of advertising. 
and so because you're you've only populated one corner of this diagram in a sense and it, you cannot make the inference about what the data in the other quadrants would tell you so at a very simple level you could say okay the, the 60 40 rule will spend spend 60 percent on on brand building and 40 percent on activation for all you know every single um, the average in every single one of these quadrants is also 60 40 you know it might just be that that is how people plan media you know sort of bit of both um, is, is it actually responsible for the outsized performance or in something as complicated as marketing? It, it could be any one number of, of factors. That's kind of my biggest sort of bugbear with it is that you're making quite a strong specific claim on data that is incomplete. Yeah, no, that, that, I think that makes, that makes sense. And on a wider scale, I've heard you describe the state of data and analytics just you know generally speaking in media as appalling so let's let's take long and short of it away for now and just think about the 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 generic use of data and analytics what what makes you think that it is so bad uh i'll put a small disclaimer on and say it's not universally wrong there are some actually some really competent people in pockets shall we say however uh, (laughs) in fact I'll, i'll make a special mention for um Alex Steer, who's at Wonderman Thompson as their chief data officer, who's who's not from a data background originally. I think he's got an, an MPhil from either Oxford or Cambridge in medieval literature, but uh, he's got as good a, a feel for for analytics and data as, as probably anybody in the business. So you know, I'll give I'll give Alex a shout out. But in so many other areas, it's it's almost non-existent, and and I think that. There's no other industry takes so little care in tracking its inputs and outputs. For example, if you were a, a client and you phoned up an agency and said, well, I want to know how much I spent on press advertising last year and I'd like a weekly breakdown, you'd probably find that the, the most junior member in the team is going to spend three days digging through plans, trying to work out what was agreed, what was implemented, what was actually spent was delivered and they still won't be entirely sure it's just it just disappears into a a black hole and it's certainly very rare for it then to be joined up with any sort of robust performance analysis um or or tracked internally to see oh um what was delivered against what we promised the client how's our performance in that area doing so so that's sort of one example i mean another example just the other day you know i asked a, a small agency for I needed some Facebook data, impressions data by week. And I, you know that arrived in Microsoft Word um, with some somebody had, I mean, not, not sort of questioning the, their willingness to help or anything like that, but they sort of would copy. Uh, they would run a report for a week, then cut and paste off the web page into a Word document and then go on to the next page and do it again. And it took them hours to just to say, okay, here's like, few weeks of Facebook impression data and it just it still staggers me that that's not a sort of uncommon thing to see in in the media industry there's likely so many uh, so many variables which which have uh, contributed to I think so much ambiguity in, in our industry certainly 
two points I'd like to make. One, that whenever I've spoken to Weimer in the past, he, he seems to uh, regularly remind me that people need to interrogate the data more, asking if we can really tell something from the data. The second point I was going to make, when you've got the, the, you know, the duopoly of Facebook and Google, A, marking their own homework, and B, not even agreeing on the definitions of some of the terms that they, uh, they kind of spew back at marketers, it is so ambiguous. I mentioned to JP that I think semantics are often the root of so many problems in marketing. But presumably, that can't help the situation. No, I, th- I think certainly on the digital platforms, you would think that it would be a lot easier than it seems to be to get accurate data in a format that is very usable. And I don't know to what extent some of these problems are people haven't been trained to use the platform effectively or um, have are sort of unfamiliar with data practices so that they don't really know what they should be expected to do in that sort of sense. I think there's that. But I think just in the old-fashioned, uh, above-the-line media, as, as it was, um, TV, press, outdoor, there's just a... I don't know if it's a lack of desire or a lack of interest in being rigorous about collecting data on, on these things. It's certainly... It's rare for it to be a sort of really rigorous practice in an agency to have your your data you know the the thing that we buy and sell and sell on to clients to have that in a in a really neat form that that it should be i mean if you were the the ceo of volkswagen and you sort of say i want to know how many cars that factory produced last tuesday that were blue you could probably find that out if you knew the right person you could probably find that out in like 10 minutes Whereas finding out simple facts about your media purchase schedule, like I say, could take could take days for people to figure out what was actually done. And is that a problem, uh, presumably, that would exist with businesses which have a significant media spend? Uh, well, we're talking talking at all, all talking at all scales, really. I mean, some of the big, the really big advertisers, Coca Cola's, Diageo's, are certainly putting more pressure on agencies to be better. And definitely asking for data to be submitted in a more precise form, and and you sort of see the the, the friction there when it, it's it becomes a lot of work to fulfil the requirements that the client is asking for. Uh, but actually, the, the what the client is asking for should be easy to produce. You know, it should be yes, we know what we bought, we know what we did, we know what we planned. Uh, we, we don't have to um, go digging about in emails to know what we intended to do and whether that was done or not. Is there any way you can defend marketers for that situation? I think the lack of understanding of, of, of the media is, is obviously a key issue. I'm not trying to defend that. But what about when it comes to actually understanding what is being purchased? And again, I'm probably thinking more on across digital advertising, but there is so much murkiness and, and fraudulent activity and, a, and a, a huge lack of transparency in what is being purchased often. Yes, no, I'd, I'd completely agree with that. So I, I, I think I think Facebook is probably the most um, egregious offender in many ways in terms of metrics. Uh, the number of times they've had to reevaluate um, their metrics and say, oh, actually, we've massively overstated this. If you say, I want to reach this many millennials in the USA, then 
they'll tell you they can reach twice as many millennials as actually exist in the USA. You know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think they famously did that in Sweden, didn't they, a few years ago? I remember reading something about that, yeah. At what point does carelessness sort of turn into almost fraud? It's almost offensive to someone that cares about data. It just feels offensive. And then you've got things like, oh, yes, this metric says that counts every time that one pixel was shown for one second on a screen. It's like, well, how could that possibly affect what a consumer does? What one pixel? And, you know, you might say, well, we think that it's it's roughly proportional, that, um, you know, we have a, a fairly uniform distribution and that 80% of adverts that fall under this metric were actually seen in full on screen for three seconds or more. But they don't seem very forward in proving that, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And, and if they were forward in proving, you just say, well, why don't you just tell me what percentage of my adverts were seen in full on screen for three seconds. And that seems like it's a, a much more reasonable metric. And the answer is that most of them are just scrolled past. Going back one step then, I think the the, the whole we can reach more people than, than really exist. I understand that one of the comments they made in defense of that was, was the, the way they treated devices as if each device was a unique person and not just another device owned by the same person. Uh, for example, you know, you might have a smartphone and a laptop and they'd count that as two people, not one person with two devices. So, I mean, that in itself is is clearly going to lead to all sorts of problems when it comes to then understanding the the value of what you're doing and trying to hit your objectives. The other one with your point about one pixel being visible for more than one second, I think at a t- for a time, Facebook classed an impression as above zero pixels for above zero seconds. So actually, it was probably even worse than that. And then, of course, that ultimately just leads to an even bigger problem with attribution, which is already an issue in itself. Yeah, I mean, there's there's very few things that um, point to an utter lack of robustness and also a lack of interest in being robust than the, the way that attribution came to sort of dominate um, the digital field for most of the last decade and I think I think it's now becoming less relevant because sort of the um, individual level data is becoming unavailable but the no one could ever have pointed to attribution modeling and said here we go this is um, robust and defensible uh, there's so many issues with it and it should have been obvious to the people, um, it might have been obvious to the people selling it. It should certainly be obvious to the people buying it, people in, in agencies, just taking massive credit for purchases that actually they had nothing to do with. Again, it's there's sort of a lot of misaligned incentives here. For example, you know, doing simple last click attribution. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons why why it's wrong, but it's actually very easy to understand. It's very easy to optimize your plan based on it. And you can tell the client that you're optimizing based on attribution. And whether it actually works or not is, is sort of secondary to being able to say that you're doing it. Uh, and, and, that, and that actually is a, a sort of a general problem with, with data as a practice in advertising is that uh, there's an awful lot of interest from people like saying they're doing it uh, rather than sort of act, actually doing it well. 
when I spoke to JP recently, we talked a lot about context and obviously a lot about complexity. Is that a reason why people typically misread or misunderstand and misuse data? It is complex, but you know, there's also you, you, there, there are things that you can do right that are are simple as well. Um, you know, and sort of the stuff around actually just tracking well what you're buying and selling is is one element of that. Yeah, I, I think the interest, actually being interested in 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 doing it, and so so here's kind of the the sort of key point is that data doesn't um, it doesn't just fall from the sky. It's not a thing in itself. It's an artifact that's produced as one of the sort of spurious outputs of an underlying system. Or what a statistician might refer to as the data generating process. Um, so there's something happening in real life, and one way or another, somebody's taking some measurements at certain parts of this, um, and and these turn up on a on a spreadsheet. And what the objective should be is to say we want to understand this underlying process and we are going to try and use the various bits of data that are produced to um, to help us understand that process. And once you start down that line, actually wanting to understand what is going on and that the data is a means to that end and you're trying to understand how what you do affects that underlying process, then you, know, you, you start to have a framework which you can work in to say, uh, this is what we're, th- th- you know, this is what we're trying to do. We actually have a purpose to, to doing this. Uh, whereas in, in a lot of agencies, you still have, well, we get data in and then there are certain standard reports that we run and then we turn them into 150 slide presentations and then we present that to the client and then we all stare at each other across the table and then say, great, let's let's do this again next month. Uh, and too often, no one actually says, well, hang on, what, what are the numbers actually indicating? Are they indicating something? Are they just random noise? Uh, do they indicate that the underlying process is changing uh, so that something that previously worked is no longer working? Uh, is that the case? Can we validate that with something else? You often get the case where you have sort of two pieces of data which are telling you contradictory things, for example. But if, if you analyse, or if you think about how, where that came from, the, the, this is these were both outputs from the same process. Trying to understand why they're different and saying, well, okay, is it the way that we measured them? Is it different? Is it to do with uh, exactly what we measured? Was it the time? Is uh, you know is one of them just uh, too small a sample size? Is uh, one of them we actually asked a different set of people? And if you asked, you find that you asked two sets of people uh, the same question and you get different answers. You know, then that there you go. That's that's something that's interesting. That it's something that's been revealed to you about the underlying process. Uh, whereas if you just look at two bits of data and say, well, these are contradictory, so we'll just ignore them both and we'll do whatever we plan to do anyway, then it feels like, well, what's what's the point? And I, I think so many of the of the activities around the, uh, the use of data in media 
you could just say, well, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, I think data in itself is, is no uh, substitute for critical thinking, is it? And often it's it's seen as a as a way of avoiding critical thinking and your meeting, your slide deck presentation was, was you know, a good example of that. I was kind of trying to think of an analogy for um, for this. And, um, and I sort of like, if you had a, a group of musicians, that, you know, like we're in some sort of ensemble, and then the, the conductor says one day, right, we're going to be a guitar-led band. Does anybody play guitar? No one does, but somebody says, well, I own a guitar. So, right, well, that'll do for now. <laughs> and, you know, they sort of stand up on the guitar. It doesn't actually change anything about how the band sounds. They're just standing there holding a guitar. And somebody else turns up and says, I also own a guitar. And it says, oh, well, but that, that guitar looks different, or it sounds different, or it's just different. Why are these two guitars different? If you had actually somebody that could play guitar, they could might tell you, oh, they're for different purposes. You know, they, they do different things at different times, and some are appropriate in some contexts and some aren't. But instead, <laughs> you just say, oh, well, well we'll just put both guitars on stage, you know, and just carry on as we are. And eventually you end up with like 30 people holding guitar, but still no no guitarist. Uh, And I think, you know, I think some agencies are a bit like that, where they will show you all of the data that they've got, but much of it doesn't make a blind bit of difference to how the agency actually functions, how the plans are output, how they work with a client how they think about what they're doing. And, and I think that's that's sort of a, a great shame. I mean, I, you know, not as I say, not all agencies, not all people, but in the main, um, I think, especially among a lot of senior leadership, there's just a complete bewilderment about what they're expected to do with data. The only musical analogy I can force into yours there is... Um... <laughs> Is, is well, I've heard it's, it's, it's something similar. I've heard how people use data or you know the dreaded averages or dreaded best practice, mm. and it's someone trying to write a hit song and they say, What's the most commonly played key in all of the best top songs ever released? Let's start with that one. <laughs> well, apparently, Alex Kapranos was a bit of a of a of Franz Ferdinand was was kind of quite into that. Oh, you really? Know, he, he would know what tempo, he would know what tempos hit songs tended to be in. That's interesting. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, Andrew, um, because I am familiar with your, your piece in Marketing Week, is your thinking that long-term effects of advertising are overemphasized. What makes you think that? I, I think I've never had a really good answer to the question, sort of like, well, how can it be a bad thing to sell your product tomorrow to someone? Uh, because a lot of time it's like, oh, we're, yes, we'll build the brand and, and you know, we'll hope that people will, will at some point buy. Well, you know, there are people buying tomorrow, provided you're not slashing the price and sort of forcing it into their hand and making a loss on it. It doesn't seem to me that there's any difference in selling your product to these people tomorrow than uh, say, oh, I'd rather they bought in three months time. Um, you know, I mean, your advertising is not a Christopher Nolan film. You know, it's not something that uh, six months from now, somebody will wake up at three in the morning and say, my God, I understand it. You know, so I'm going to buy a Toyota tomorrow. It's like, actually, somebody is going, somebody is going shopping tomorrow to buy a car. And the best thing you can do is get them to go to the Toyota garage first. 
you know, just give them a little prompt and hopefully they'll go there because I, th um, I think research shows that there's a disproportionate number of people will buy at the first place they go to, for example, to buy a car at the first garage they go to. There's something in there about the sort of satisficing that Rory Sutherland will talk about. You know, it's like, oh, yes, this, here it is, this is good enough. You know, let's get it over with. I don't want to spend all day going around garages. Um, so it's sort of that very short-term effect. Um, I mean, this, this kind of came from a project I did some years ago at D2D where we were modelling for Honda in the, in the USA. I think this was the first big car brand we'd ever done and we'd kind of read around the research. It's like, oh, yeah, we... We understand that you know we probably won't see a big obvious effect from advertising, like in the, in the same week because it's a all the literature says a very long term consideration and on all the rest of it, and um, yeah we, we couldn't have been more wrong. There's a massive short term effect from advertising in, in in the car market. At any one time, there are, there are a lot of people about to go and buy a car tomorrow, so uh, you know let's let's target them. It's kind of related as well. I think that brands are primarily built through product experience. It's like I think brand love follows purchase. It doesn't lead to purchase. So um, it's, it's unusual for someone to say that they love a brand but never to have purchased something. I mean, I guess something like a Ferrari maybe. But then maybe you, you could argue that Ferrari is a, is a brand designed to be experienced vicariously. But, you know, it's like if you're selling cough medicine or soup or something like that, then the best thing you can do is get somebody to buy some tomorrow and enjoy it and ha have it in their cupboard or um, get them to buy again and again. And that all feels like it's, you know, get them to buy in the short term. And when you start digging into sort of long term the effect of advertising as well, you know, I mean, estimates of how many adverts that an adult sees in a day I think the lower bound is 500 and the upper bound is like 5,000 or something like that. Do they all have a long-term effect? It feels like you'd be utterly paralysed in your ability to make a decision if you know you had if your, your car purchase six months from now was being influenced by the thousand car adverts that you saw um, as opposed to the one that you saw yesterday. I just think it seems much more likely that the, the shorter term effect while you're about to pull the trigger on a purchase decision is more likely to uh, to have the, the impact that that you want uh, and it's not to say there isn't a long-term effect I think there's a long-term effect particularly through repeat purchase um, particularly through uh, for example your if you buy a car your first car it's very likely to be the same brand as your parents but the next car you buy is disproportionately likely to be the same brand as the last car you had. All, all of these things, all of these constituent parts of what make up a brand, it, it's all about, ultimately, it's like getting the, getting a good product into people's hands. And, you know, the endowment effect will say, oh, yes, I actually, you know, people like the car that they've bought more than they sort of liked it prior to purchase. You know, it's, I get it's that sort of idea that now that this is mine, I think it's fabulous. There's a there's a really good experiment um, a few years ago where an economics professor gave sort of class mugs to half of his class and said, "All right, try and sell your mug to someone in the class that doesn't have a mug." 
it was almost impossible for anyone to make a purchase because anybody that had a mug, the endowment effect made them think it was really much more valuable than anybody that didn't have a mug thought it was worth to buy it from them. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a great little example of, say, of saying, you know, um, people love the thing they have and it's it's partly sort of post-justification of purchase. Uh, but it's also, you know, it's experience, you know, um, you know, people that people that really love Apple Macs, um, you know, keep on buying them, and they probably love them because the first one they they bought was great, and they become evangelists. And I think the impact of advertising on that long term brand effect is far less than the fact that people like the product. Yeah, but equally, people get locked into an ecosystem, don't they? I think that that can sometimes conveniently be forgotten in that Mac or PC debate. Well, you know, I mean, I I, I have a, a long-standing grudge against Apple because I bought an iPod dock. The first time I bought a really good hi-fi system, I bought an iPod dock for it. And then the next iPod I bought, it was the same shape of connector, but they changed the pin configuration for for no good reason, which meant it didn't work. So I had £100 worth of dock. It staggers me that a, a company that can be so willfully abusive to their to their customer base again and again and again, uh, changing connectors, all of them non-standard with anything else. People do love their Macs, except me. I think going back to the, your um, point about long and short, I think the only, the, only, the only real harm people can do focusing solely on the short is, as you caveated it at the beginning, if any, any sort of price promotion is to bring forward sales. But perhaps there's an argument to say it's 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 limiting reach to focus on short term because you don't reach the entire market. You only reach those who are actually in a buying situation or more, more likely to be in a buying situation. But aside from that, it's a it's a very good point. Well, I mean, the, 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 there's all sorts of definitional issues. You know, it says um, what is a brand advert? What is an activation advert? If I see your your um, your beautiful brand advert on the TV and I pop out the next day and buy something, you know, have I, have I got yeah. that wrong? Is it have I misunderstood? not a brand ad anymore? Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just seems, you know, these, these definition problems, I mean, no, um, you know, just as we're talking about definitions in digital space, you know, just these sort of broad brush categories of saying, oh yes, this is brand, oh, that's activation. Um, but you know they're still going out at ITV at nine o'clock on a Saturday night or something like that. So yeah, I mean I think that in the piece that you mentioned, I sort of referenced um, Erwin Efron, sort of who's who'd sort of like had this uh, thing called recency theory, which is essentially that at any moment in time there's always somebody that's about to buy in your category. You know there's always there's always thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that are about to buy in your category probably tomorrow or maybe even today and if, if um, your advertising should affect their decision um, much and you should worry about that much more than thinking about the purchase decision of somebody three months from now cool makes a lot of sense can i put a couple of listener questions to you andrew yeah of course so asking the general public for their opinion be it on brexit or boat names is notoriously fraught with danger but we do have two starting with sam sam says Andrew, you, like Giles, I know, support the idea of asking stupid questions. What's so important about asking them and why are they so difficult to ask? 
Well, what one of my professors once once said: if you have a question, you should always ask it because guaranteed, there's like twenty other people in the room that also have the same question. Um, and it's partly about most people are are very bad at judging what other people know. Me as as a lecturer or as a as a teacher, I I can assume all sorts of knowledge because. It might be very familiar to me, so I assume that lots of other people have it. I might assume that you'd read a book that you haven't. You might have, um, you know, all of these kinds of reasons that you can have assumed knowledge. And at some point, somebody has to say, uh, actually, I don't have that knowledge. Can you just clarify that for me? And nine times out of ten, you know, the person will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, I I should have said this is the answer. And I think certainly as you get a little bit older and more experienced, you know, feeling able to ask these questions feels more like a sign of confidence than it does a sort of sign of um, ignorance or weakness. Having said that, I have sometimes asked questions and had such a withering put down <laughs> about, you know, you should have known that, you know, that sort of one time in 10 is it's not very pleasant, but I think it's it's worth it on the balance. Great answer, great answer. Number two is from Kerry, and we're going back to analytics now. So Kerry asks, what are some of the most common mistakes or assumptions people make when using basic tools such as Google Analytics? So we can probably expand that outside of Google Analytics too, just to be fair. But The most common mistake is to focus on the sort of summary statistics um, of of whatever factor it is you're looking at. What's much more interesting is to try and look at the the distribution, the sort of the variation over time. Um, Because, I mean, statistics is the art of losing information. You're trying to take something that's very complex and lots of data points, and then you're trying to say, I want one number that will represent this. Which is fine, because in, in, in many cases... Um, you know, you don't have the, the cognitive capacity necessarily or the time to work with all the data. But an awful lot of the time you do. So this kind of goes back to some of the sort of ideas around systems thinking that the there was a process, there's an underlying process which has generated this data. If you look at the, the full range of the data that was generated, how much is... How much of it is sort of very high value? How much is it a low value? How much clustering there is? Does it cluster around the center? Does it cluster in two or three separate points? Uh, all of these are factors that sort of should either uh, help you understand or send you looking or realize you don't understand what's going on. And, and the effort to try and understand is what makes... Um, sort of a, a better analyst if you like there's all kinds of sort of I, i'm sort of very enthusiastic about sort of just systems thinking in, in general like how how do you um how do you think about what the, the actions you take you know how, how do they influence the real world um and that that's something that that sort of too few people uh, make any effort at all in, in media like thinking okay if I do this uh, where will that show up in the data who will it affect you know what's going to change how much is it going to change by uh, how quickly will it change all, all of these things 
it should be part of a continuous learning loop where you say, okay, I think I understand this. I think if I do this, this will be the result. You do it. And then you say, was I right? And that's, that's incredibly rare to actually go back and check on your predictions. Um, and it's, it's even more rare for, you, for people to actually dig into the reasons why they were wrong. And that happens a lot. You know, uh, there's lots of campaigns that, that flop. You know, we're, we're very good in, in advertising and media about celebrating our, our successes. But it, failures are buried <laughs> uh, and sometimes careers are buried along with them but um, it's it's very rare for if you have a total turkey of a campaign that people will say well hang on this came out of exactly the same process the internal agency process that resulted in a previous really good campaign you know we haven't really done anything different so somewhere along the lines we have made an assumption that was that has proven to be wrong. Let's go looking for that. Let's understand why we were wrong. Let's understand why this failed. Uh, and then we've got a better chance of not failing in future. And instead, what will tend to happen is that it'll be like, we'll just not mention it. To the... <laughs> we'll never mention it again. You know, we'll, we'll think of some cockeyed reason why it was, um, uh, why that didn't work as we expected, but less lessons learnt are, are are quite rare. Yeah, the only um, it's quite a primitive example actually by comparison, but the only Google Analytics example I've I've got because of the lack of context, you end up with lots of false binaries as you do in all parts of our industry, admittedly. But I remember years and years ago talking to a client about their relatively new website that they had launched pre-engaging with us and they were trying to understand their google analytics and they had always been taught that a bounce rate was a bad thing and you didn't want the bounce rate to be high but what if someone's search query has matched precisely to the page on your website that holds that information so they find out the information they need from you and then leave the site surely that is a is a success for the the customer but i but i think it's it's too easy to to almost I suppose there's a cognitive argument to try and be keep things easy and understand that a bounce rate is good or bad when actually it's not it's just a bounce and it's the context that really reveals what's happening yeah and so that you you have an underlying behavior you know you have systemic behavior and you could get around that by saying well uh, I want my bounce rate to only be people that leave within two seconds Uh, people that stay for five minutes and then leave you know, I don't want them counted in in this bounce rate, for for example, and that's what and that's kind of one of the, this is kind of what I mean about the distribution, um, within that. So if you said, okay, show me, the distribution of times that people spend on my page, and you plot it on a on a chart with sort of time along the x-axis, and you might have like a number of spikes. You might have. You know, a spike of people that realize in the wrong place within two seconds. And then there's a big gap. And then there's another spike up around, you know, uh, or, or maybe a, a bigger blob from between 60 seconds and five minutes. And you say, okay, so from the distribution, we can see these are the people that bounced immediately. And these are the people that spent some time consuming content. Um, and what you would actually get, if you took the average, you would get a point that, was neither of those things. It would be, you know, it'd be about 20 seconds. You say, oh, you know, 
the average time that people spend on my page is 20 seconds. You know, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, even though nobody did spend 20 seconds. <laughs> exactly that. So um, that's what I, I mean about um, working with distributions to understand the underlying system. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a really good way of um of understanding it actually. It reminds me of I'm not sure if it's a Sutherland or a Trot story, but it could probably be either. Where I think fighter plane cockpits were designed to fit the you know, the exact average of all of the I think it was American fighter pilots based on their body shape and limb length, etc. And what they found was it was uncomfortable for every single fighter because there wasn't <laughs> one of them that actually matched those dimensions. And there was a book published recently. I forget the name of it, but it was um, it was looking at how uh, so many things are designed around male physiology um, and not female physiology. That that you know, women are definitely getting the the, the raw deal on on that, um, and that that includes, I think, even like helicopters. <laughs> to, to continue your analogy, is that it tends to be the, the reach is too great. Um, for sort of female pilots, but everything from like crash test dummies to seat belts to, you know, the symptoms of a heart attack are are, are just actually quite distinctly different between men and women. Uh, and this lack of understanding of the difference has you know makes women more likely to have to die from a sort of undiagnosed heart attack. The book could be one of invisible women exposing data bias in a world designed for men or mismatch. I think I think it's the first one. Yeah. Yeah, so we we spoke to um, an incredible uh, lady called Trisha Wang, who's an ethnographer, and she actually used the very the example of the room she was sitting in when we had our recording session was set to an aircon default based on the male body, not the female body. It was actually one or two degrees off when it would be comfortable for for her. But yeah, I thought that was a great example. But no, you're right, absolutely right. Cool. So the, the final part of the interview then is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Starting with number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> I mean, there was some. I was at an event with Dave Trot, and um, you know, somebody asked him that question, and, you know, and he said, you know, don't worry what, don't worry so much about what other people think of you. It's worse than that. They're not thinking of you. <laughs> You know, they're they're thinking about their own life, so not even considering what you're up to. And so I always quite like that. Um, at the same time, there's been points looking back on um, my slightly random career when I think I probably should have cared slightly more what <laughs> certain people thought. Yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, I don't necessarily have good advice, but I would say you know, like enjoy enjoy it as you go. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice, though, to be honest. Number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Uh, I, I hope I know what you're going to say, and if you don't, I might force you to say it a bit later. Uh, well, one of the things I would definitely get rid of is um, is earnouts. <laughs> you know, I, I think the earnout model uh, of acquiring businesses is could have been specifically designed to ruin company cultures. And I've experienced that a little bit, and I think it's it produces bad results all around. So I'd like to ban that. <laughs> and also, you would like to ban ROI. Oh yeah, so <laughs> I knew I'd hook you on that. Yes, yes, no, you have. ROI is um, an absolutely stinking metric to make any sort of evaluation. Yeah, you know, there there are a number of reasons why. One 
is uh, the most useful model that there is in, in media planning is just the idea of diminishing returns. Uh, so, you know, you, you, if you were to draw a diminishing returns curve, you know, as you increase spend on media, for example, or, or impressions or reach or whatever it is, then your, your line of the impact that has sort of um, increases and then starts to sort of, it behaves asymptotically. It gradually gets closer to being completely flat. So there's a maximum effect. If you then say, okay, well, what we're really interested in is the amount of money that we generate then you'd follow you'd draw another similar curve that would um track just beneath the diminishing returns curve on the way up and then it would curve and then it would peak and so there'd be an optimum point say this is the point at which the incremental revenue from media minus the cost of the media is at its maximum and so that's really what you should be looking at but roi and people aren't really very good at um at thinking about division as a mathematical operation. But ROI would be a curve that starts off at close to infinity for close to zero spend and only ever decreases. So ROI will be decreasing all the way through the period at which your incremental revenue is still increasing. And so if you optimize on ROI, then you're almost certainly going to end up under-investing and you're going to leave pro- a potential profit um, on the table, all because that you're um, you're choosing to use a metric which was never designed for marketing expenditure. You know, I mean, return on investment for a, for a start, um, marketing is not an investment. Sorry, people, that's <laughs> uh, it, it's operational expenditure, and it's absolutely vital to the operation of a business. You know, you are creating customers. It's like demand engineering. There's a perfectly good reason to say, you know, we need to spend money creating customers, um, and that's uh, and that's just how the business runs. You don't. I think the the whole that marketing has disappeared down to over twenty or more years, where uh, everyone desperately says, oh, it's an investment, even while the the financial director is looking at his uh, rules on accounting and saying, nope, nope, it's definitely a cost. Um, it has hasn't left the industry in a in a notably better position than it was. <laughs> so anyway, for all of those reasons, yes, we should we should completely banish ROI. Um, I mean, and and this it's it's actually uh in two thousand and four, Tim Ambler from the the London Business School wrote a paper called ROI is dead now bury it, where he explained all of the problems with using ROI, and you know. People have known it's a terrible metric for for all this time, so that's what seventeen years, and yet we still manage to have seemingly the only thing we've managed to educate our clients to do is to focus on ROI, and I think that's a damning indictment of our <laughs> of the industry. Yeah, I've not read that paper. I'm gonna I'm gonna look it. Look it I, can, I can send it to you. <laughs> oh, please do. Yeah, please do. In fact, we'll add it to this listing so that um, our listeners can pick it sure. up too. Fantastic. I, I won't force feed you any more, any, any more answers. I'm just wary that I, <laughs> I wanted to uh, try and tear that one to shreds earlier and I, and I missed my opportunity. Um, number three then, Andrew, any books that you would recommend to our listeners? So the, the first one I would uh, recommend is uh, it's by Douglas W. Hubbard and it's called How to Measure Anything. Um, and it's a, it's just a really interesting read about how to approach 
measurement in well in any environment essentially but particularly particularly about business and there's all kinds of um there's lots of wisdom and there's lots of sort of counterintuitive stuff in there and i sort of really enjoy it the second one i'd sort of recommend is uh it's a book called management f laws by russell akoff uh russ akoff was a a systems theorist there's actually a, a brilliant youtube video it's only about 12 minutes and it's called if if russ akoff gave a ted talk and it's it's yeah it's worth 10 minutes of anyone's time to just get an understanding of basic systems thinking um but the management f laws it's a number of uh sort of like just sort of pithy little statements uh, with a little bit of explanation for example like number 21 the less managers understand their business the more variables they require to explain it and so, you know, anyone that's ever looked at a dashboard that's got 150 KPIs on it, you know, will, will sort of recognise this, you know. That um, that TED Talk, funnily enough, or sorry, if you had given a TED Talk, was sent to me by um, by Bruce, uh, who, who I think you're also familiar with after after the episode with JP. And I, I hadn't seen it and it was absolutely incredible. It is brilliant. Number, th- all right, third book on my pile. It's called Everything is Obvious Once You Know the Answer, and that's by Duncan J. Watts. Um, and this is, it should be sort of read by anybody working with data in a, in a media context, because it, it sort of shines some light on the idea that we're very good at rationalising why um, why. Th- sort of if we get some data we'll say oh well that makes perfect sense um but if you can say oh that makes perfect sense regardless of what the data says you say oh yeah i can work that i can see why that might be the case then um that's of absolutely no use in trying to like predict beforehand what might happen so i mean the sort of classic example that um that he gives in the book is they did a survey of American GIs following the Second World War, and they said uh, I, the sort of report was that people from a, a country background uh, actually found it easier to adjust to life in the army. And you know they would, they would ask people about that, and they would say, "Oh yeah, that makes sense because people from the country are used to getting up early, they're used to to tiring physical work, you know, all these kind of things." And then the researchers said, all right, well, actually, we found the exact opposite. You know, there was people from the city that did better. And you can kind of say, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense because people are used to living in, in close quarters with each other. You know, they're, you know they're, they're used to not getting on each other's nerves and, and that sort of thing. And because you can post-rationalize whatever this survey found, if you had to think in advance who is going to do better, uh, you find that, you know, you don't have any good reason. thinking okay uh, okay my final recommendation which i read last year is is the mind is flat by nick chater who is uh, i think a professor of behavioral science at warwick Um, and that's all about sort of brain and cognition and you know it's one of the the sort of few books i would say has genuinely changed how i perceive other people and myself yeah oh fantastic nice one and then number four, we always dedicate every episode to somebody and we bestow that honour to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you do the honours, Andrew? 
Yes. Um, I, I get so many people because I, I, I've made so many sort of good friends in, um, in sort of my time in media. Uh, but I'll just mention uh, okay, well, I mentioned I mentioned them earlier. I mentioned Paul Dyson and Carl Weaver earlier, and I think they probably had the biggest influence on uh, sort of my career development because yeah, they created an environment where I sort of was really able to develop some of my thinking and ideas. Uh, and if anyone's ever in any doubt about the sort of the role that managers can play in and creating a work environment then those guys are a perfect example of, of, of how to do that cool well this episode is very proudly dedicated to paul and carl then uh, so as a final call to action everyone can head over to this episode uh, we'll share links to everything we've discussed to all of the books which were how to measure anything management f laws everything is obvious once you know the answer the mind is flat how else can people get more andrew wilshire I've got a couple of articles up on Marketing Week from a couple of years ago, um, but I can normally be found ar- arguing with someone or other on um, on, on Twitter. Uh, at AJ, He's not lying, by the way. At AJ Wilshire. Um, so, yeah, I'm always happy to have a, an open and frank exchange of views, shall we say. <laughs> and, and, of course, I'm always, um, always available for hire. <laughs> Yes, of course, of course. Well, we'll 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 include both of those marketing week articles that you reference, um, and your and your Twitter handle. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. It's been uh, it's been wonderful, mate. It's been great. Well, th- thank you for for the invite. Thank you for having me. And yeah, I've, I've enjoyed this. And finally, thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. We really value your support. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah, hey, hey.